The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. My name is Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Big Beacon. And in every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. Also, uh, today you can uh, uh, listen, quote unquote, to the show on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon Radio. Hashtag Big Beacon Radio. Today we're lucky to be joined by Frank Muck, who is uh, Associate Dean of Architecture at, uh, at New York Institute of Technology. Uh, Frank, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Dave. Well, and and I became aware of your your writing in a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. You wrote an article with the uh, engaging title, Architect Licensing Needs a Gut Rehab, and it caught my fancy as as an engineer and some of uh, my own thoughts about engineering uh, licensure and uh, professionalism. And so we're really happy to have you on the show to talk about some of these issues and uh, professionalism and professional education. Great. Yeah. So, um, uh, as um, we're going to jump into the topic, but uh, you're an associate dean of architecture. You're a registered uh, and chartered architect, um, and you've worked in the fin- uh, financial services sector. But uh, let's uh, kind of spin back in the time machine. What, what are some of the critical early experiences that led you on your current career path? You know, in my, in, in my family, we, uh, my family was in the construction industry, so that I always had this, I've been intrigued by the magic of architecture and great architecture, especially the, ma- the magic of the creativity that produces great architecture. So, you know, from a very young age, this kind of spurred my interest. And um, I started pursuing it um, as I got to college age and and it's just been that path that took me to where I am today. It's, it's been a wonderful profession, and I think it's one of the greatest professions. And the educational system, I think, is valued by many in the profession. And I think we think of ourselves as very different than many of the other professions, but it's, it's a very special thing. And um, that was really a good decision, I think, when I was that young to grab onto that ride. 
Yeah, so that's really interesting. And then in the middle, there was a sort of emphasis on business and financial stuff. What was what, what was that about? So when I graduated from architecture school, I was contemplating going on to get, get my master's. But, you know, I was always intrigued by the kind of Wall Street world. And when I graduated from architecture school, I felt I had skills where I could do anything. So um, I kind of jumped in that world. I really wanted to work for some big development development organization on Wall Street and people advised me to go get excuse me, an MBA at that point. So yes. I did and that's how that pathway kind of started. I started working for AIG and then Morgan Stanley and kind of spent 10 years working on Wall Street doing development all around the world. So, but it was connected. It had this tie back to development of, of large uh, built projects is what I'm hearing. Is that, is that yeah. fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, and, and on this show in uh, big beacon and a whole new engineer were, were fairly interested in sort of who were the unleash, what were the unleashing experiences? And I may have, we may have already heard that from you, but like going back uh, in the time machine a little bit uh, once more, what were some of the like key points in your career where somehow you were unleashed to have the courage to do something that was a little unusual or kind of a daring step or who were some of the people that helped you do that? I remember when um, one of my first design classes, (laughs) we were working on a project for uh, a retreat for upstate New York for a very kind of famous uh, kind of health guru who had a retreat in upstate New York. And, yes. and so I remember that class and I was struggling with my design in that class. And, and as we got toward the final jury, which was comprised of like 10 people and all these people, famous people were there and stuff. Um, the class before the final class, I just totally revamped my ideas and had to restart drawing everything from scratch, which is a very dangerous thing to do in education. So I remember staying up for four nights and just working on this thing from scratch and putting it back together. And I remember having a roommate that was two years senior than me, another architecture student. And he kept on telling me, you're going to fail. You can't change your design right before the final crit. So I remember four days without sleep. I went into that final crit. I was in the middle of the pack. Everyone's drawings were up on the wall. And I presented my ideas and it was silence. And then one person on the jury said, this is it. This is the one we want to build. And everyone kind of piled in, which is kind of extraordinary because it was in the middle of the, you know, we weren't done seeing all the work or all the work yes. wasn't presented at that point. But I think at that point, you know, that was a paradigm shift for me in my career. When you ask, when did you, when people ask me, when did you become an architect? I think that was the moment. It wasn't oh, right. when I got licensed. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Yeah, right then. Um, that's a really cool story. Thanks for sharing it. And, and, um, yeah, so let's let's turn to your article and um, architect li- uh, licensing needs a gut uh, re- rehab. You start by saying that um, actually you start by t- talking about the dearth of students going into architecture. Uh, how bad is it? What's how, what's changed? So we we're, we've been seeing a twenty percent decline over the last five years of students coming in to the profession. I think there's also, over the last year, another 7% drop in the degrees awarded. This is for all the schools of architecture in the United States. And I think that's kind of extraordinary, especially in terms of um, this environment we're we're in. Since like 2008, 2007, 
you know, the, the Dow Jones index, index doubled. So we should be having really explosive growth. And, um, you know, I find in our school there's more jobs than we have for the students, students available to fill them. Career Services calls me and says, you know, you have to promote these jobs more because the employers are getting angry that nobody's calling. And I say, well, I think everyone has jobs, <laughs> you know. There's almost a new building going up in every single block in the city right now. So we're at a very strong peak. I think we're at almost at the top of the peak. We well, and I'm, continuity. Yeah, and and so and and I know in, in the engineering case, we we see ups and downs in different you know so businesses that have sort of boom and bust. Uh, aero the aerospace business goes up and down, and construction goes up and down. But I, I'm hearing this as as different or extraordinary. Is that fair? I'm sorry. What the uh, the? Uh, I'm hearing the, the this shift. Path. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah, shift is being up. somehow extraordinary. You know, you've had you've seen other cycles probably in architecture schools over the years where things yeah. have gone up and down according and so you construction goes down and people stop going there's a lag and, and kids stop going into architecture and then construction goes up and, and kids go back in. But this is different somehow, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I, I well, number one, this is a very extraordinary uh rise, uh tidal rise tidal wave of economic growth we're seeing. And for some reason, you know, we're seeing a decline in the students coming into the profession and we're seeing, we're seeing a decline in the number of degrees awarded. Sure. And just give us a sense. So I, I have a better sense of the landscape and engineering. So in engineering, I think, you know, the gender uh, gap is pretty wide. There's 17% women and the the rest men. And uh, in graduate school, there are high proportion of people coming to us from um, other countries. So, what's what's the student body like in architecture? So, I think if you look at you know the students in IDP or taking the exam, we see about 35% of those uh, female at this hmm. point, which has been rising. Um, I mean that. Not a great rise, but it's been rising steadily over the years. But I think we could probably do much more than that. And that's and there's probably been a shift from from times past that that's that's risen from the olden days to to now. So thirty five. So you know, we'd be in engineering. We'd be ecstatic about that number right now. So yeah, um, I think in in two thousand it was about twenty five percent, and we're up to thirty five. So over. You know, 14 years, we added another 10%. Okay. And so um, now you um, you attribute the, these, you attribute the low numbers of, of uh, students uh, it, uh, coming in or the decline to at least partially to the licensing process. So, so and I'm pretty sure there are people listening that are that are not architects and don't know about the licensing process. So what what is it about the licensing process that's so arduous or difficult? So you know, a architecture degree. There's many different pathways, but um, the like the two main pathways are a five year bachelor of architecture degree accredited okay. degree yep. or a three year master's accredited degree. So it's about a, the five. Let's talk about the bachelor degree first. It's about 150 credits, five years. You know, not obviously not everyone completes that degree in five years, especially these days where there's so much competing issues in life and and that sort of thing. And then after that, you have to go on 
and started started an internship. We call this intern development program. So you have to work through different so many hours of internship and construction, you know, contract administration and contract drawing and site planning and they have all these hours kind of pegged to those different tasks that a mentor has to sign off on. So the average time to complete that is they're saying last year is almost five years to complete the internship. And then okay. after that, you have to start taking the exam. I mean, and the ARE, the architectural registration exam is, you know, it's about the average time to take that because you take different parts. You take a part and you pass it or you fail it. You have to retake it. So they're saying the average time for that process is two and a half years right now to get through all those. So it comes, you know, when you add that all up, the um, the NCARB, which is our in charge of our licensing, um, they're saying that the average age of a licensed architect is 33 years old right now. So I think that, you know, that's like the big elephant in the room. And I think, you know, they also say that the, average age when you complete the internship is 31. So it's very interesting to note that we're in the business of producing 31-year-old interns at a time when people are starting companies at age 22 and they're doing entrepreneurial stuff and becoming CEOs and launching and selling businesses. Our profession, which is probably the most very entrepreneurial, invented much of this language of innovation and entrepreneurship is not letting loose our talent into the profession until age 31 to 33. Um, and we're producing 31-year-old interns. It's almost as if it's, it's a movie starring, we're stuck in this never-ending movie starring Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. But in our case, it's not a comedy. It's a tragedy, I think. We've got to release this talent sooner. We really have to work on this, on this number. Yeah, and the thing that you just said, you know, the the contrast with uh, how young people are when they're starting companies, uh, and they seem to be getting younger. Of course, there's a case there that you know that that they're not even waiting for for anything like registration to do that. People are just going into the world. But I think the point that you're making is a really interesting one that that. That we live in a pretty fast-paced world, and to expect someone, you know, people have already changed what the average average career movement, job movement these days is. You know, maybe in the old days, people used to go work for one architecture firm and work their way up, but people are changing jobs every three, four years. So, by the time you're 31, you've you've already changed jobs two or three times, and you may even have bootstrapped yourself out of being an architect per se. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. the pace of change in you know society is very rapid right right now, and also to add to all that stuff, I don't know if you ever been to one of these venues like uh, Dave, like Burning Man or South by Southwest, but the topic yes. of conversation at at those venues is often deprofessionalization. It's rampant, rampant. It's occurring in society, and it's a you know it's attacking right now. It's a tidal wave, and. And an example I give of this is when, you know, I cringe when I have to walk. One of my classes in Ed Hall in Old Westbury is near the library, and I cringe when I have to walk to my class because all the librarians come out and kind of attack me saying, they cut back my staff again. They cut, you know, we can't believe we're being cut again. And I know that the, the most valuable 
one of the most valuable people in architecture school is the librarians, but this tide of deprofessionalization is just overwhelming. I, I almost can't help that, you know? And I, and I fear for that because, um, and I fear for that for all professions. It's not just us. Yeah, and I was just in Canada last week in a, at a change lab involving engineering educators, uh, engineers without borders, uh, Canada, as well as the uh, some of the professional uh, societies in Canada, kind of looking at professional issues and how how do we get. Yeah, you know, so it's one thing to change engineering education. It's another thing to change the profession. And so how do you, I mean, there's some really interesting how questions and maybe we'll turn to those um, at the end, but that this is happening um, in a whole new engineer. We, we said, uh, we actually said that returns to expertise are diminished compared to olden times that the, the university when it was created was based on sort of expertise the finding of some roman law in pisa and so and and so now we we fast forward uh, past the uh you know past the uh, the uh entrepreneurial revolution past the it revolution past the quality revolution and we're in this very different place where any 14 year old with pimples and a laptop can read the same stuff that an expert can. That doesn't mean that expertise is zero, and it doesn't mean that all knowledge is explicit knowledge like that, but it does mean that, it, that it's tougher to be an expert or, or a professional than it, than it once, once was, and that we need to think differently about those things. What do yeah, you think about what, the stuff I just said? Well, codified knowledge is something that everyone has access to now. It's easily accessible. You know, it's part of the artificial intelligence world. It's that yep. tacit knowledge the, that you learn, the expertise by doing, know-how, that's so important. I think that's one of the big strengths of our profession, you know, that sort of tacit knowledge. You know, I was talking about, I was doing some work at Oxford a couple of weeks ago with some friends at, uh, colleagues at, in, in the science business school, and one of them is kind of an expert on professions. His name is Chris McKenna, and he gave me this really good metaphor about professions. He said, professions, were like lobsters. We build this hard kind of shell on the outside of us for protection, but then the problem comes we can't grow. The only way to grow, we have to shed the shell and step outside the shell, and when we do that, we, we become extremely vulnerable, but to not do that means that we just shrivel up and die in this eight-inch thick shell we built for ourselves. I think that's a really kind of important metaphor, metaphor for professions. Um, these things don't last for, forever, and we have to really think about that at this point in time. Well, and I, I love the lobster metaphor. That's really great. And, and the sense in which um, the other thing is that we need to be shedding these shells much more frequently, and yet we're sort of, in many ways, we're sort of stuck in a kind of a 50s time warp. You know, we, we've had, you know, we had things happen after World War II, and a lot of those things have, we're kind of uh, stuck with. Well, I, I think we've got a lot more to talk about in the next sec segment, Frank. Uh, so let's just take a break, and we'll come back and pick up with some of these big issues that are on the table. This is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Frank Mark, and then the next segment, we want to continue this discussion of um, professionalism and, and uh, professional education. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Klass. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with your host, Dave Goldberg, and our guest, Frank Muck. And we're talking about transforming professional registration, professional societies, and professional education. Before we get back into that conversation, we urge you to get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education. It's not just for engineers or engineering education at www.wholenewengineer.org. So, Frank, in the last segment, we were kind of talking about the the ways in which uh, architecture is generating 31-year-old um, interns. How does this how does this compare with uh, licensing and registration in other professions? Well, I, I know that in uh, other parts of the world, we have the by far the longest. U.S. has by far the longest minimum time to licensure of any other part of the world which I don't know what that says about our faith in our young people, but I think that we really need to think about that point. And I think, you know, in other professions, you typically, they're all different, obviously, and some require master's degrees and some don't, and there's different pathways. But I think typically in other professions, you, you see people practicing in their 20s. And this is just, you know, very rare in our profession. And I think that's, once again, that's the big elephant in the room that I think we aggressively have to address over the next three years. And so, how do, and what do you propose uh, for our, and we're talking, you know, so in, in your article you talked about, uh, you know, medicine and dentistry, that it's not unusual to have a, 
very youngish looking uh, doctor or dentist uh, in that case. And actually the case in engineering, uh, the, um, you know, they're basically two part in the States. There's a two part exam, uh, uh, essentially fundamentals. Uh, and then um, a part that you take after you've practiced a while, but uh, the, the time span is relatively short and you, you can, ha- you can be a professional engineer in, in your twenties. Um, Anyway, so for architecture, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you suggest? Well, I, I, you know, I, you know, everyone has been aware of this problem for a long time, and I was, I'm not the first to talk about it. Yeah. And I think everyone who's in this profession loves this profession. We've been, we've been working on this for quite some time. NCRBs have been doing some wonderful stuff and cutting back the time. and made some gains recently and lowering that time. But you know, I think we have to really think in terms of something drastic at this point and paradigm shifting this thing into a, into a new direction. I don't know if that means bringing more people, rethinking the profession and bringing in more people and more types of lower level tiered licensing. You know, there's a very interesting article that, um, that was written by, by the AS, by one of the presidents, I think of the ASTM about the institutional void in architecture with building science. You know, we don't have really people working on building science. And so like, and that would be a wonderful thing to kind of pull into the profession and, and maybe give a lower tier license for someone who has expertise in that. So they can, you know, maybe they're not stamping drawings for the whole building, but they could be stamping drawings for building technology and building systems and that sort of thing. So that's one way of kind of looking at this, and another way is just, you know, I think we really have to look at the system and is everything really necessary that we're requiring of our prior to licensure? Because once again, we're the, we have the longest system on the planet right now. Well, and, and, and so, and it's also interesting, you know, so there's usually with architects, there's a, a dual response, you know, so we're talking, when we talk about licensure and, and stamping drawings, we're really, we're talking about the safety of the building for the public. And so architects usually share responsibility for the safety with, you know, structural engineers. Usually there's, right. are there architects and structural engineers signing off on, um, on the building certifying that it's, you know, safe for, for the, the public at, um, I guess right. they're, you know, so, so they're interesting the questions. Of, yeah, they're interesting questions about, you know, what what things what things can go wrong for the public, say, if an architect blows it versus a structural engineer blows it. Yeah, but, you know, it's increasingly, um, you know, we think of t- in terms of architecture as a, as this, like, master architect who kind of sits in the studio and pulls together this building. But, you know, that very often that's not the case. There were mega firms that collaborate. I think there's, a, and that's another trend in architecture is so much of our profession is these little, little one, two, three, five mat people offices, but the mega firms are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and buying up all the mid-sized firms. And so these are big, huge collaborative environments and, you know, not one person is doing anything right now. We all have to collaborate and take a little piecemeal. And I know we're responsible for the health, safety, and welfare of the public via that stamp. But, you know, tying back that whole collaborative process to one stamp is, is kind of interesting because it, sh- it changed over time. You know, well, and, 
doing the yeah. one-off. And it's and it's and no one person actually, you know. So if if you look at all the stuff that is in is in BIM systems and and building information management systems and and CAD drawings, uh, computer aided design drawings of of the building, no nobody actually really, no single individual actually knows everything that's kind of embedded in in all those databases and and structures. There's a there's a the the thing that uh that the the architect or the engineer signing off on the project is certifying is actually something that's hard to, hard, much much harder than it was say uh, when a drawing was some finite set of of or a building was a finite set of drawings that somebody actually had their hands around. Yeah, and as we know, the people who built those systems, you know, if you think of a project manager and and a really complicated project where a project manager built a schedule and that schedule is like two hundred pages thick. Yep. You know, it's hard to transfer that information to other people. You can say, here's a schedule, read it and understand it. It's very hard, but that person who built the schedule has it all in his head. Yep. So that so that person is very powerful because they know all the interrelationships and they, they develop this gut instinct about the project that nobody else can really get by just, you know, second, secondhand nature looking through the drawings or looking yep. through the schedules. But that's yep. the same thing with, like, BIM models, you know, they're, and there's... And now we have this collaborative environment where those heads, where the, where the people who have that information in their, head, in their heads are three or four or five different people. And they're all kind of meshed together and collaborating at the same time. These BIM models are becoming, you know, I can see a point in the future where they become very important and where there's, I can see a point where perhaps maybe even, you know, people are buying BIM models rather than starting from scratch and they're taking them and, stretching them and branding them and putting their own identity on them instead of starting the whole process with a bespoke building done by an architect. Yeah. Well, and, so, and, all, and, and all that, I mean, so all this ties back to the sort of the forces, the, the, the IT forces that have in part unleashed all this are part of, part of what we're all reacting to. But, and, and, uh, and the, the engineer in me wants to go down this uh, technical path even more, but I think there may be some listeners out there that want us to kind of stick to the uh, um, uh, the, the registration, the professionalism issue. And so as we think about um, – uh, and actually in your article you said that something like six of ten gr- graduates in architect ultimately become less licensed and that the rest, rest find jobs elsewhere. What are the four of ten doing? I don't know. Some of them are working in architecture firms, some in construction, some in building trades, some in facilities management, some in project management. Uh, some are starting, you know, some of our students have started solar energy companies. Some of our students have started fashion companies, which is very interesting. And um, one of our recent students just started a virtual reality company. So there's a wide, I think this profession of architecture is so, is so wonderful. There's a wide variety of things you can do and you have the confidence to go and do. And it's interesting that these students have gone in these radically different directions from leaving that, from leaving you know the academic academic environment, and they have the confidence to go into these worlds where there's really you know a body of expertise surrounding these worlds, but yeah, they have the confidence to kind of poke in these new different worlds and environments. 
Well, it actually isn't that. I mean, that's only, there's a sense in which that's to be celebrated. I sometimes back in back when I was an academic, I'd hear people complain about the number of engineers that weren't practicing engineering, and and then I said, well, what were they doing? And they'd be doing just like you said, many really exciting and creative things. Isn't that a cause for celebration and not concern? Yes, definitely. I think so. I, I you know I think this is a testament to the power of the educational process and the profession that can have yeah. someone so flexible and, and confident in, in transcending these boundaries. So, and maybe, and, and actually there's, there's, there are lots of, I guess it was interesting being in Canada last week. And so in Canada, there's in the same way that, um, you're talking about the emphasis on licensure for architects. There's a similar emphasis on getting the PNG, the PENG, the professional engineers um, uh, credential in in Canada that doesn't exist in the states. You know, so you know, so civil engineers that have to sign off on drawings get registered and are proud of it, but. Electrical engineers actually take great pride in not being registered and starting companies and being entrepreneurial and so forth with, without the credential. Maybe you know, I wonder if we do we do we really need to change registration or do we need to change attitudes towards uh, licensure? Well, I think you know it's hard to separate the you know the the term architect, which is a protected. A legally protected term in the U.S. from all these other things we're talking about, and and you know a lot of our educational system is is kind of we're mandated to think in terms of these certain criteria and what we're yeah. you know the evidence we're producing, getting from our students to pr- prove that they're really learning this stuff is very stringent. But so I think if that's the case, which maybe it is, you know, can we think about architecture? outside the realm of just producing licensed architects. I think we can, and I think it would maybe it might be beneficial to do that, but it's kind of hard to separate it from the profession and the licensing thing. No, and, and, I, yeah, and, I and I understand that. And actually, this are an interest that came to my head, and I've worked with industrial designers, and I think of architects and industrial designers in terms of their skill set as having some you know, common threads and thinking about uh, user and and experiences and being concerned with the the human side of 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 technology in similar kinds of ways, um, I think of the process wise uh, the the kinds of things that they go through as being similar. But but in some in what I I'm, I'm not familiar with the industrial designer registration, but I'm pretty sure it's not anywhere like the architect example. So I have I've worked around the world on many different um, kind of charrettes or workshops. One in Sweden on, on a town that was collapsing into a mine, and they invited like I can't remember the number, like thirty or forty different designers from forty different countries around the world to come work on that. Yes. And it's amazing. So I sat and worked with all these different disciplines, even business people, and it's just amazing if there's to me that if there's another architect on the team, we're just immediately aligned. I can almost anticipate what that person's going to say. or It's almost to that point. It's kind of scary. But everybody else, you kind of have to figure out where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. The industrial designers and the business people, where are they coming from? And it takes time to kind of work through that process in a collaborative environment. But, you know, I think this is a, this, this is a very wonderful and poetic thing for the profession. You know, there's only 107,000 of us 
we can all fit in, you know, Beaver Stadium at Penn State and get the whole profession in there. And we're really tight and cohesive. But on the other hand, I think this might be very dangerous because if some sort of shift in society comes, we're very vulnerable, I think, because we're all the yes. same. Yeah. So, um, I guess one of the things uh, that I was interested in your article and that, you know, so this, um, you know, the, you've had this enrollment decline and it, and, um, and you're tying it to this lengthy licensure process, but, but the process, actually, you said that they've improved the process a little bit. It's actually gotten a little better, you know, marginally better, but it's still this, thir- the situation with 31-year-old interns. So it, it wasn't the licensure process that changed. Something else changed. What um, what what is it that what is it that's changed that's cause that's causing this drop in in students? Well, I think you know students right now they want to uh, kind of actualize their skills like right away and something out in the real world. And I think we're selling this whole big package, this thirty-one year old package. Like often, I think of this like in terms of the way artificial intelligence is. We think of that. We think of artificial intelligence and in terms of this big Watson computer that, you know, it's so complicated, it can, it can, you know, solve all our problems, but it's going to take a long time to kind of really develop that. But in essence, artificial intelligence, some people say, is being developed in terms of little apps that are embedded in Siri, an app such as, you know, Siri, book me a flight to London next week. I want to leave on Tuesday and I want to be back on Wednesday. And Siri goes and does that. And then these apps will be, all these little apps are being developed and they'll be tied together at some point, and it'll take a long time, but eventually all those apps will be equal, Watson. So I think if we, maybe we can think of education that way. People have, instead of being intimidated by buying the whole big Watson or the whole big architecture program, which is going to take great time, if we can sell education as, you know, piecemeal, like three or four little classes, app-like classes that you can you know, actualize and authenticate and activate immediately in society. And maybe you can come in and out of the academic world because, you know, that's what you want to do. Or maybe you spend the, the whole time in that environment and you, you eventually end up buying the whole Watson computer. But it would be interesting to think of education that way. You know, much more flexible, much more, you know, piecemeal work that can be immediately activated in society. Yeah, and so, and actually, so I think you know this is a this is an interesting uh, point that the, it's actually you know, so the my question about what's changed I, and and the kids have changed. You know, the yeah. kids don't want the, the so some time ago the long career as a as a master architect uh, was had some appeal, and so now kids want to be able to take their skills out into the world. And um, do stuff for their own purposes, um, and sooner rather than later is what I heard you said. And so this app-like metaphor that you're using is sort of, is better aligned with what um, with what students um, students today want. Is that is that a fair yeah, summation? Yeah, so they're totally different. They're savvy. They're smart. They know what's going on, and they know what they want, and they you know. You know, this whole process that we're selling, that's, it just, it, it's just cumbersome for them. They, they move much quicker. 
Yeah, and so that and and so there's. Anyway, I think this opens uh, the sort of the educational can of worms for us, and and uh, like to compare it to the engineering can of worms. Um, we're gonna we're going to take a a, sh- a short break, and and after that, we'll come back and examine. You know, so what is the education of an architect about, and how does it compare with other professions, and and um, in what ways is the education appealing or not appealing, and and how should education. Uh, change. This is uh, Big Beacon Radio with special guest Frank Muck. In the next segment, we want to dig dig into this whole educational process for architects and, and, uh, and other professionals. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio and Get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to help transform higher education at www.3joy.com. And we're here with uh, Frank Muck from N- uh, New York Institute of Technology, and we're talking about professionalism, professional education. And, Frank, we were, we were just talking about the, um, some of the different options, or you called them apps, that we might have for uh, st- students in architecture. What you know what has a traditional uh, architecture education been been like? Many of our our listeners won't won't know. So uh, the five year program it's very design intensive. Um, 
you know, that's pretty much, I think, the core of many, most of these programs. Um, we really value the, um, the aesthetic and the process of design, and it, and it adds to the critical thinking and design thinking ability of our students. And usually when students come into the school, we have these uh, fundamental design first-year classes, which is, it could almost be talked about in terms of deprogramming, you know, getting rid of all the baggage and make, making students posture in this beginning mind kind of mold and what are you really seeing, that sort of thing, and thinking spatially and about things rather than, you know, what we're programmed to see. I think often in this world we just programmed with these, our brain is programmed with these flashes of images, the cliches that make us interpret the world, and we're trying to break through all that stuff in order to, you know, make students see in a new way, a, a real authentic way, and solve problems, um, you know, solving problems is what we do also, kind of in, in an intuitive way and a solution-based way, bringing, bringing, you know, problem resolution to the forefront in a process-based and a physical-based kind of outcome. So I think design, the design curriculum goes on in most programs through all of the five years. So you're constantly taking design classes. And then you have history classes, and professional practice management classes, technology classes, and that sort of thing, which supplements um, that sort of education. So, I mean, I think that's basically um, the way architecture curriculums are pretty much mapped. Okay, and so, you know, and, and uh, you know, when you say in the olden days, design meant a lot of, um, you know, drawing at a drafting board or, or, or um, a lot of drawing in general, a lot of seeing things, as you say, seeing things, and is, is that still the case with computers, or is it, is it done on a computer now? How's, what's, uh, what's design mean in, in the 21st century? Yeah, we, our school takes very, and a lot of schools do, we don't want to lose that hand-eye connection, so we, we ban um, kind of computers in, in the first couple of years in, in the studio because we really want students to have that hand-eye connection and, and visual thinking through what they're drawing. And then the computer comes in. So the computer is, like, very interesting these days because, you know, we talk about parametric design and parametric metric modeling and algorithms, which are generating these growth kind of um, forms and functions. And we talk about performative buildings where buildings are actually performing and reacting to the environment as, as opposed to being static objects. So, and we talk about, of course, sustainability and, you know, the, the planet needs to, is a, is a resource that needs to be protected. So all these things are kind of, in the curriculum and have been developing um, over a number of years. And I think they're, these are all great things for society that society really, you know, needs. And I think architects make great leaders because they really feel, they have empathy with, you know, saving the world and making things better. Yeah. And, and, um, and then there's, and before you use the term crit, um, and uh, so there are these critical design reviews where where people put forward the designs and they get they get feedback on them. What's what's that about? Uh, it's a, uh, it's a, we talk about this in terms of sometimes studio culture, and there's always a constant dialogue about your ideas and defending your ideas to a group of peers or faculty. 
and this is a, an ongoing kind of thing in our profession, and, and it, it goes on all your life. And I think it's that sort of dialogue and that sort of feedback, one-on-one or group feedback and sharing ideas and defending them and, and uh, helping to other people push their ideas forward is a, is a very interesting thing in our profession, and I think it, it kind of brings this kind of cohesive experience-based thing that our profession has that that is very special that I, I don't know if other professions have that to that degree. Yeah. And, and, and I'd say it, it has origins later than architecture education, but in engineering education and things like senior design and industrially sponsored senior design, there are things like crits where there's this kind of feedback going on. But if you, if you look at, say, early engineering education, there's this emphasis on what we call the basics, which is oftentimes viewed as math and science. And in engineering education, we, you've, you've got to sort of get past quote, or at least that's been the theory, that you've got to get past these basics before you sort of, and the spinach of the basics before you can do the chocolate of design. Is there a, is, sometimes I think of that as kind of a hazing process. It's not very supportive, and a lot of kids, a lot of kids don't make it. A lot of kids, uh, we lose a lot of young engineering students to the impersonal, quote, unquote, objective nature of the mass science death march. Is, is there anything like that in architecture? Well, I think it's part of that whole deprogramming and then creative process and thinking spatially, which you really need to be able to kind of master that sort of thing to get, you know, we have thresholds in our school where after the second year, you have to submit a portfolio to be accepted into the architecture, Bachelor of Architecture school. So, you know, you really have to kind of get through those those basics, similar to what you're talking about, in order to make that, get through that gateway. Uh, so there's a decision made, and then how many, what what kinds of percentage, I'm sure it varies from school to school, but what, what percentage of the ones who are trying have a portfolio that's acceptable? Yeah, you know, it totally varies every year. So um, there's not, it doesn't um, come down to a consistent number. It depends on the year and the students and that sort of thing. We have, a, our school yeah. is, uh, you know, we take great pride in giving um, access and opportunity to all qualified students. So we have a wide variety of students from many different backgrounds, and and so it, and that cha- the mix changes drastically on a year by year basis. Sometimes we have big, you know, external groups from out of the country come in. Sometimes we have different, you know. So it, it's hard for me to. No, no, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but for example, in engineering, we can lose significant numbers. We can lose a third to a half of our class um, to the math science death march early. And these are kids that did well on on math and science in high school. And there's somehow there's a it 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 really is almost a hazing process. Nobody's saying that they don't need to know that stuff, but somehow they didn't get the the connection between that stuff and, and what it was to be an engineer. And that's why I was asking. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I guess I'm, I'm a little curious. Um, uh, and we've, you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, some of the difficulties what are what are and you, and you mentioned that some of the professional societies are doing something. What are what are they? 
what are they attempting to do to to people recognize it's the same situation in engineering education people recognize that we've got some problems and people are attempting to do stuff but it's it's difficult what what are the societies attempting to do so uh, you know the licensing people NCRB have been making great strides and and they have this new concept called the integrated educational process where they're pushing internship as part of the educational process. Mm. It's probably going to extend that process a little bit longer, but you know, it's, a, it's, it's one attempt to, to kind of address this thing and bring the numbers down quicker. They also eliminated almost a third of the IDP hours, the intern development program hours. So that's going to have great strides and kind of moving this thing forward a little bit. And, um, and also, they decreased one section of the exam. So they lowered one section. Well, this will happen next year. But uh, so all those things are very positive effects in, in a very positive direction. The AIA, American Institute of Architects, you know, it's interesting because we think of our profession, NAB, which is our accreditation bureau, thinks of our profession as five constituencies. One, NCRB, which does our licensing, which I just talked about. Yeah. The other one is the profession, AIA, American Institute of Architects, and they've yeah. been doing a lot, you know, with formation of study groups. The Center for Architecture in New York City is one of the greatest things. They have great programs. I could go there every day of the week and get a drink and watch a great program. It's like a fantastic venue. And they've been doing these support groups for students and and having holding um, uh, architectural license prep classes, and they also start all these support groups for emerging architects. One of the groups is called Enya, which is a fantastic group. It's called Emergency Emerging New York Architects, Enya, and that's a great group. So that's the AIA. And then we have the AIAS as part of NAB, which is the students. And, you know, they're pretty aggressive, and, um, and they know what's going on and savvy, and they're forming their own groups to kind of help get past this thing. And then, you know, the other group we say we talk about is the public. So the public needs, I don't know what the, you know, the public is, should be engaged in all these things that we're doing because we say the public is part of the five constituent organizations that kind of oversee the architectural education process. So I think everyone, you know, it's a very kind of collaborative environment that the issue for me is that it's not moving fast enough. I mean, I sure. think we're thinking in terms of, you know, I did a lot of study in the past on strategy. And, the, you know, strategy is kind of the language of the CEO's office. And that language has changed a lot over the number of years. It used to be game theory-based, and then it moved to positioning kind of theory. And then it moved to a resource-based view of the firm. But right now, it's kind of focusing on innovation. And innovation yes. is the language of innovation has been crystallizing over the last, as you know, 10 years. So people, it's easy, easy to talk about it now and transfer it. And a lot of that language comes from us. You know, I find it interesting, the architectural profession and the design profession. And so the way corporations, CEOs, everyone knows in every single corporate office, CEO suite in the country, that you can't just do incremental change. Because if you just do that, you're going to end up like the Smith Corona typewriter company. You know, you're getting better and better and better and better profits. But sooner or later, some change or social change will come in, you know, potentially wipe out your company. Sure. So corporations know they must innovate and explore. So they talk about that incremental change is exploiting what you do that's good and, you know, making money off of it. But they know they have to put significant resources into research and exploring and new directions. 
And I think really as a profession, we really need to do that. It's ironic yes. that everyone else has taken this stuff that we formed a lot of the language and we're not really applying it as much as we should to our own beloved profession. This is a great observation, Frank. We're, we're almost out of time. So if people want to um, uh, find out more about uh, your thinking or your, your program, how do they get in touch with you? Uh, they could send me an email at uh, smruk at nyit.edu. Great, and, and thanks for being with us. I, I, your impassioned uh, plea for innovation and the origins of, of the language and how it's done, um, applying it in, in, in your own profession and else, uh, elsewhere, uh, educationally and professionally, is, is a great way to end. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, Frank Merck, and help but. Uh, uh, transform at higher education and learn more at www.bigbeacon.org. Uh, join us next week, uh, same time, same channel, as we, we talk about one of the masters of interdisciplinary uh, uh, studies, a uh, uh, man named John Holland, a pioneer in complex adaptive systems. Join us next week. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.